So we're spending, as I told you last week, um, the last three or four Sundays before Christmas, our Christmas service, um, listening to Jesus in the Gospels. We, for half a year, we looked at Jesus in the Psalms. And God willing, some of us, at least, got freed up. We saw what an awesome and amazing and astonishing God He is. And we know, because He is who He is, we can be disciples. The disciple call of Christ Jesus is extreme. We talked a lot about it last week. But we know we can do it because He is who He is. It's not about how great I am or how great my faith is. It's about what an awesome God He is. So it seemed good after looking at Jesus for six months to hear what He had to say in the Gospels. And as I told you, we're going to look at some of the the hard things that Jesus had to say about being His disciple. Uh, Last week we looked at quite a difficult passage. I'll reference it in just a moment. But I love... What Randy Alcorn says, he's an American pastor and author, and I've shared this quote with you about three or four times of late, but I love what he says. Um, He says, if we listen to Jesus Christ, we will never be the same, nor will we ever want to be. Right? If we've really met the God-man, we can't live like the world anymore. It's too small. It doesn't interest me near as much as Christ Jesus interests me. So, if we listen to Jesus, we'll never be the same, and we will never want to be the same. So I hope that as we looked at Christ's unsearchable greatness in the Psalms, I hope, I I was sharing with Karen today, I needed it, personally, I needed it. I needed the Psalms for 20 weeks. I needed it. I know you think I'm up here preaching because you need to hear me say something. Listen, I'm a preacher because I need it bad, right? (laughs) I need it. It's why I'm so thankful I get to do what I do. I get paid money to study the Bible and to talk about Christ. And I need that. That's how weak I am, okay? You know, some men are in the pastorate because they're weak. And I think I'm one of them. Man, I need to be in the Psalms. I need to get freed up. I need to be amazed. And I need the courage that Jesus Christ gives me. So, the last few weeks of the year, it seemed good to look at the red words. And at ICM, we are interested in God's Gospel. We don't care about anyone else's. We just care what the Bible has to say. You remember what the Apostle Paul said about a different gospel in Galatians 1.6. And I know I bring this up probably five or six times a year. But he said, even if an angel comes to you with a different gospel, what does he say? What does God say to the Apostle Paul? Even if an angel appears before you and it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does Paul say? He says, if I or an angel come to you with a different gospel, let them be accursed. There is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. The gospel that comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ and comes off the pens of His apostles who write the New Testament. There's only one gospel. And I know if you go out on the internet, there seem to be 
Hundreds of different kinds of Gospels, right? All in the name of Christ. We've made much of the fact that pseudo-Christianity is rampant in these last days. And I don't want any false teacher, right? Any counterfeit teacher to make some false dichotomy in your mind. And some of you may have heard this um, in churches that you've come through. I hope not. That there's some difference between discipleship and salvation. That when Jesus calls people to discipleship, well, that's a different thing than when He calls them to salvation. I have to tell you, beloved, I, I know I say this pretty frequently, that's just wrong. There is no dichotomy. When Jesus calls a man or woman to, to discipleship, He is calling them to salvation. It's the same thing biblically. So I want to make sure we understand that. And last week, Jesus made it clear. He says, my disciples, my people, real Christians will love me supremely. That was the point of Luke chapter 13. My people love me supremely. They are absolutely and utterly devoted to me. They will love me more than they love their life, is what Jesus told us last week. He says, my people love me more than they love their family. My people love me more than they love their stuff. These are the words of Jesus, the red words, the, the, the gospel according to Christ. This is what we're trying to look at in these last few weeks. As I meditated on our text tonight, which I haven't shared with you, and I apologize for that, uh, Matthew 7, please open your Bibles to Matthew 7. Some of you will be very familiar with this text. Matthew 7, we'll begin at verse 13, and I'll read it as I preach it, so I'm not going to read it in its entirety at the outset. But as I meditated on the text, and you'll understand why in a few moments, I kept thinking of Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken. And you may remember the most famous lines in that poem uh, are this. Frost writes, There are two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. It makes me wonder if Frost was plagiarizing um, the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have recognized already that Matthew 7 is the evangelistic call and conclusion to the most famous sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we're going to be looking at this evening in Matthew chapter. Seven, Because Jesus is talking about the road less traveled here. He's talking about the narrow way. He's talking about the small gate. And then He says, there are few who find it. And we'll read the text in just a moment. So it made me think of Frost's famous poem. As By way of introduction, just one more comment. I want to ask you how many of you have read this book, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, wow. Not very many. Listen, I can't recommend a book any higher than I can recommend this book. God used this book to really challenge me at an important time in my, in my life. And of course, you know who it's written by. <laughs> yes, you guessed it. My favorite preacher in the States. Uh, it's not my fault he writes good books. Why is that my fault? Um, 
John Piper, American preacher. And uh, so, Piper talks about what your average human being wants out of life. And this is some of what he says. He says, you, you talk to most people and you say, well, what do you want out of life? And they say, well, I want a good education. I want a good spouse. I, I want some good kids. I, I want to get a good job and I want to make good money and I want to have a nice home and I want to have some good friends and I want to have great vacations and I want to have a fun, leisurely, well-funded retirement. That's what I want. And there's only one thing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of it except there's, there's this huge omission. What is it? Where's God? Where's Jesus Christ in that list? That's the problem. That's the problem. There's no reference to God. And then John Piper writes, God created us to live with a single passion. This is, this is the purpose for which God created every human being. To joyfully display His supreme excellence in all spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. Most people slip by in life without this passion for God. Spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, squandering their days on bubbles that burst. I love that sentence. And Piper says, it's not true for the true believer. He says, for the true believer, God in Jesus Christ has unleashed us from such small concerns. <laughs> I love this. We have been set free to live life the way God intended to His glory. It is the road less traveled. Right? Back to Frost's famous line. It's the road less traveled. It's the narrow way. It's the small gate. Most people are wasting their lives. They're completely wasting their lives. Living for superficial things when God has created you to live for Him and make much of Him in all the superficial things. Right? It's what mankind was originally designed to do and be, and it's certainly what the Christian is redeemed for. Right? Not to chase bubbles that burst. I love that line. And I'm just going to ask you, how many of you are chasing bubbles that will burst in your hands? You think right now, those, that's everything. That's what I want. That's everything. I can tell you, I love being an old man. I love it. Because I have some street cred here, right? I'm an old man. I've seen a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of things. I can tell you how many times those bubbles I wanted burst in my hands. Now, some of you won't take my word for it. Some of you will have to go do it yourself. You'll have to spend a large chunk of your life chasing something that will burst in your hands. And what I'm trying to say to you is don't waste, don't waste your time. Pursue Christ preeminently. And He'll bring order to the rest of your pursuits. So I just want to ask you, which road are you on? Which road are you on tonight?
As I often say to you, Jesus didn't say go into the world and make church members. What did He say? Go into the world and make disciples. What do disciples do? They come to church if it's not too inconvenient. Disciples do what? They follow Christ. They seek to obey Christ. None of us do it perfectly, right? But we're serious about it. We're dead serious about it. How does C.S. Lewis says, the words of Jesus make you joyfully serious and seriously joyful. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Jesus says, go and make disciples. So, so tonight, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the conclusion of this great sermon. Jesus closes with an exhortation and a warning and an illustration. So verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. I hope you have your Bibles or electronic device at the ready. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many, that's not the first time he'll say many, many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So first, Jesus tells us at the outset that there are two ways to live this life. There are two ways. You can go with the world, which is the broad way that leads to destruction, or you can go with your God. You can go with your Creator. And you can begin to live a God-sized life. Right? With God-sized joy. <laughs> or you, you can go with the world. It's your choice. You do what you want. God says, hey, I'm here. If you want me, you can have me. I'm here. Most of the world, bam, out the door. Right? It's an astonishing thing. Theologians have never understood how it is that man has turned his back on a good God. I know that in the media, God gets blamed for everything, but we've been talking a lot about this in the last few weeks, and we've been talking about it in Young Adult Bible Study. God's not to blame at all. You're to blame, and I'm to blame, and all of our forebears are to blame. The world's messed up because we messed it up. As C.S. Lewis says, the abuse of free will. So the Bible demands a response. Jesus preaches the best sermon in the world ever, Right? He gets to the end, and what does he say? Enter in. Come to me. You must enter. Christianity is not academic. It is not theoretical. Christianity demands a response. You must respond. You must respond to Jesus Christ. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here. He's the one that wrote the Message Bible. He says, it's no good looking for shortcuts to God. Right? You, there are no shortcuts to God. You have to come in, uh, in, uh, in through the narrow way, in through the small gate. There's only one way. You don't get to decide the terms we talked about last week. You don't get to decide the terms of coming to Christ. He decides the terms. And you get to decide, well, I'm going to come or I'm not going to come. Right? It's how it works. You know, it's like, I know I hammer this a lot, but I'll tell you why. I think some of, most of you already know. It's this whole pseudo-Christianity thing. This wide gospel, right? Uh, 
It's like, oh, you can be a Christian without repentance. Oh, you can just live like the world and still call yourself a Christian. Well, I did the magic prayer. I did the magic ordinance. The pastor or the priest or whoever said I'm in. It's a wide gospel. You can do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. And you can call yourself a Christian because you did the magic prayer. It's the wide gospel of pseudo-Christianity. Don't you love it that Jesus is trying to save us from the small dreams? <laughs> he says, hey man, I want more for you than that. I don't want you to get to the end of your life and it all turned to dust and ashes, right? I want you to have what? you were created to have. Luke 13.24 says, Jesus says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Strive! And I, I know we don't have a lot of people in here, but I bet there's some who call themselves a Christian and they have never striven. In pursuit of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's all free grace. Of course it's all free grace. But Jesus says you must enter in. You must strive to enter in. It's not an easy thing. It's not just pray this prayer and do this ordinance and you're good to go. Now, if it's all genuine, you are good to go. But if you're playing a game with God, if you're just playing religion with God, well, we'll see what that will get us as we look at the rest of the text. I love Eugene Peterson, his paraphrase of Luke 13, 24. He says, you know, the way to life and to God is vigorous. How many of you are vigorous in your pursuit of Christ Jesus and in your uh, effort to obey Christ Jesus? Are you vigorous? Could, could I watch your life for the last, say, two or three years, those of you who are Christians, and I, and I would say, man, that guy is vigorous. He's vigorously pursuing the Lord, right? And vigorously seeking to obey Him. These are the words of God. These are not my words, right? It's what the Lord says. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Right? The faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves is always obeying Christ. Right? Discipleship is salvation and, and salvation is discipleship. We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We have to become disciples because we are saved. It's how it works. It's like Frost's poem. Life offers two ways. One is well-worn, the other not. Jesus is saying there are two gates. There are two ways. One is wide and broad, and most of mankind is on it. The other is small and narrow, and few are those who find it. Of course, Jesus is talking about the road to heaven and the road to hell. The broad way, the easy way, the popular way, the normal way, the fashionable way, the politically correct way. It's the way of the world. 
And I'm going to ask you, some of you are probably on that road. I lovingly say to you, you're wasting your life and you're headed for a disaster, an eternal disaster. It's the way of the world. All man-made religion, <coughs> beliefs, philosophies, values, ideals, and culture. Jesus says they all lead to destruction. Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Jesus is the only way. I know I, I don't have to tell most of you this. He's the only way, but... You know, every once in a while, we get someone coming through here that, that thinks, well, you know, there are about 25 ways to get to God because that's kind of what's out in the world. That's what the media puts out there. It doesn't really matter as long, you know, objective truth doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that you're sincere, right? <laughs> I, I sincerely believe X, Y, Z. Well, can you hear Satan laughing? Can you hear him laughing? There's not five ways to God. There's not three ways to God. There's not two ways to God. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Jesus says, I am the only way. And He's pretty blunt. He says it's a narrow way. It's not for everyone who merely says, I believe in a God. Almost everybody believes in some God. The vast majority of humanity believes in some God. It's not only for those who simply are religious and sometimes attend church. It's not for everyone who just prays a prayer and gets baptized. Jesus says it's for those who enter by the narrow gate, who genuinely respond to the Gospel by faith. You know, you can't go through the narrow gate with any kind of religious garbage. You go through by yourself. You can't trust what your mother said or your preacher said or your friend said. It's between you and God. Right? The narrow gate is between you and God. Do you believe what He said? And are you coming to Him? through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, uh, Jesus gives two warnings. Verses 15-20 to 20, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus gives two warnings. First about false prophets, and then about false disciples. He, in context here, He's talking to the Pharisees, the most religious people who've ever lived. He's talking to them. That's who He's talking to. They were all caught up in self-justification and self-righteousness and they were doing their religion and they were proud of it. 
Well, I do my religion and I know God's proud of me for doing my religion. Well, Jesus blasts these guys over in Matthew 23. He just blasts them eight times. He says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, which is what? It's a curse. It's uh, uh, an expression of condemnation. Woe unto you. He says, you're whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You are sons of hell. This is what Jesus said to the religious men. That's why I always tell you, religion is a pejorative to me. Christianity is not religion. Someone tell me what it is. I'll give you a hint. It starts with an R. I tell you all the time. It's a relationship. God's not impressed with your religion or mine. In fact, it's a stench in His nostrils that you think you could come to Him by religion. We don't have the proper view of His his infinite holiness and He's infinitely above us. Nothing we could ever do could make us acceptable to Him because of the great sin that we have all been guilty of in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus is talking to the false teachers of His day, and of course they have only multiplied in these last days. You can walk into your average... It's, a, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a love-hate thing for me to walk into your, your average Christian bookstore in the United States because you go to the bestseller. Uh, I always go to make sure my book, see if my book's up there, right? Uh, Bertha's laughing. It is funny, isn't it, Bertha? No, I go over there and I, I want to see the bestseller list. And all these false prophets are smiling down at me with their beautiful teeth and perfect hair. Right? And it grieves my soul that this is being peddled as Christian. Right? Eugene Peterson, paraphrase again, verse 15, he says, these guys, these preachers dripping with practice sincerity. Right? You watch these guys. (laughs) And you, yeah, I'll, I'll stop. But I think Eugene Peterson has said it well. God says in 2 Peter 2, He said, these men and some women, He says, they are stains and blemishes upon the church. They revel in their deceptions. They are springs without water. They are trained in greed. Go back to what Jesus says. You can tell they're trained in greed. You can tell by their life. You can tell by the fruit of their life and how they live. God says in Jude 12, these, these men and women are hidden reefs in the church, clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit. Jesus says you'll know the false prophets by their fruits, and you'll also know the false disciples by them. Verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles. There's that beautiful text in John 15 where Jesus has dismissed Judas to go do His dastardly deed. 
And then Jesus talks about the false, the false disciple, the false branch. He uses the metaphor of the vine. Ultimately, the Christian will be known by their fruit. It's not just what I say, it's how I live. How I live doesn't earn me salvation. How I live proves that Christ is in me. Right? So, if we are real disciples, it will not be academic. It, it will be the way we live our life. I, I, I remember the very first sermon I ever preached, right? Um, back in the mid-80s. I don't remember when it was, but I remember it was this text. And I grew up in a tradition where the church was really, really good at making church members. We made a lot of church members. Right? You could pray the magic prayer and you could get baptized and the pastor would call you uh, uh, a Christian. Now, it happened to me when I was nine years old in that church. Right? Eight or nine years old. I did the, I did the prescribed formula and I was called a Christian. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, nothing in my life changed. It was I did it because my parents wanted me to do it. So I did it. So how many, how many people does that happen to? And so, Jim, why do you preach... Your very first sermon, why do you preach this text? Because I lived this text. Because it happened to me. I professed to know Christ. But I didn't. I didn't know Him at all. And so it was a, it was a labor of love to preach this text to many in my home church that I ultimately left. who were deceived. What does He say there? Verse 22. Oh, there'll be a few that are deceived. What does He say? What does Jesus say? What does the Son of God say? Many! Many! There'll be many! It's an act of love for a pastor or for you to love someone enough to say, you know, many will be deceived. Many will be deceived. It's the word of the Lord. And here's the deal. We're not talking about generic religion here. We're talking about Christianity. We're not talking about Buddhists and Hindu and Muslims and apostate Judaism, etc., etc., etc. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who claim to be Christians, who claim to have some kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. They call Him Lord. Beloved, you know, read your New Testament. The false Gospels were coming. Jesus was barely out of the grave and the false Gospels were coming. There's almost, I can't think of what book it would be. I'm sure there is one. Maybe Philemon. Where the writer of the book is not fighting some heresy. And it has only multiplied in these last Days. Did you notice how impressive these guys are? These are not just your average Christian who shows up on Sunday. These guys were prophesying, they were casting out demons, and they were performing many miracles. Now, how are we to understand that? <laughs> how are we to understand that? 
Well, spiritual deception is real. It is rampant. It is pervasive. Jesus is saying that many who think they're Christians, they are not. I love, again, I, I know I've quoted him several times already. I'm going to quote him a couple more times. Eugene Peterson, the Message Bible. He says, These guys were using Jesus to make themselves important. It was about them. It was never about Christ. It was all about them. It was all about them looking good in the eyes of men. So in actuality, these great works that are listed in verse 22 have nothing to do with Christ. They are Satan-inspired and empowered pseudo-Christianity. Have you noticed, and I think I brought this up a week or so ago, have you noticed how many people, when you ask them, why should God let you in heaven? You get all of these, it's just maddening almost. Even from people who profess to be Christians for years. They'll say something like, most people will say something like, well, because I'm, I'm, I believe and because I'm, I'm good and I do good things and I'm nice to the neighbors and I pay my taxes, I don't kick the dog. I mean, all the, they come up with this stuff, right? What's the right answer? It's not because you're good. What's the answer, Christian? Why should the Father let you in? Because of the Son. That's the only right answer. Because of the Son. Because of the, work, the finished work of the Son in my behalf. His righteousness is imputed to me. There is only one false religion in the world. I have many different names, many different false prophets, many, diff many different kinds of dogma. It's all the same. All the world religions are the same. You perform in such a way that you think you impress God and He'll let you in. That's ultimately all false world religions. It's what you do. Christianity is what the Son of God has done. It's a vast difference. Christianity is the only faith that talks like this. <laughs> it's, it's not about how good you are. It's about how awesome He is. It's His righteousness on me. It's His spilled blood on me that allows me to stand before God. Verse 23, And then I, Jesus says, I will declare to them, these religious men who have these amazing religious resumes, He said, I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, as I emphasize so often, it's always about relationship about a real relationship with the real God. I'll give it to you again. I give it to you frequently. John 17.3 If you ever get confused about what the definition of Christianity is, it's right there. Jesus is praying to the Father and He says, this is eternal life that they may know you. Bam! That's it. That's eternal life. If you know, if you know God through Christ then you meet the biblical definition. And as I often say to you, I, some of you probably grow weary of me saying it, but it's always John 10. Jesus says, I know My sheep. My sheep know Me. 
My sheep hear my voice and my sheep follow me. If anybody ever asks me, Jim, boil Christianity down to, to one or two verses, it's John, it's John 10. It's this knowing. It's this following. It's this hearing. So, real Christian is in a real relationship with the real God. And, you know, the New Testament metaphors are astonishing, right? We are the friends of Christ. We are the adopted children of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And if you read John 17 closely, you realize that in some mysterious way, the, the church is caught up into the Godhead. Now, I'm, I'm not going to touch it. I'm just going to leave it. But Jesus says, they'll be in us, is what He says. And I don't understand it. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to expound on it. I'm talking about this intimacy that happens between the true believer and their Creator and their Redeemer. It's, it's an amazing thing. Of course, that last verse, or pardon me, that last phrase there in verse 23, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Obviously, Jesus is talking, again, He's talking to religious men. He's referring to hell as 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, this eternal destruction that is away from the presence of the Lord. It's what Jesus is clearly saying to these men. And as we did our psalm study the last half of the year here, uh, I, I got reacquainted with Psalm 81.15. I think I shared it with you some months ago. I think it's beautiful. It's powerful anyway. The psalmist says, those who hate the Lord, listen to this, those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. And their time of punishment would be forever. Psalm 81, 15. God hates religious pretense. He hates it. And it says those... Actually, what it's saying is those who would uh, engage in pretense actually hate the Lord. It's not about the Lord. It's always about them. It's about them. Lastly, Jesus closes the best sermon ever preached with two illustrations. Verses 24-27. to Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came. And the winds blew and burst against the house and it fell and great was the fall. From verse 24, what does Jesus say the real disciple will do? You tell me. What does it say right there? What do the red words say? The real disciple what? He obeys. He acts upon the words of God. He acts upon the words of God. Is that the signature of your life? You claim to be a Christian. Some of you may not claim to be Christians. That's fine. I'm glad you're here. That's how I got saved. Some guy was reading the Bible and 
bam, okay? So it's good that you're here. Cool stuff happens at church. Uh, take my word for it. But he says, the real disciple acts. He doesn't just hear, he acts. And so what do we know about the false disciple? Verse 26, what does he not do? What, is it, what does the false disciple not do? He will not act. He's happy to hear, but he will not act. He will not act on the words of God. You guys know I love James. I've preached through the book of James a couple of times. James 1.22 Prove yourselves doers of the Word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. James 1.22 says that faith, the faith that hears and does nothing is deluded. James 2.20 says the faith that talks and does nothing is useless. And Eugene Peterson's my favorite paraphrase of his, James 2.17. He says, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? And what I want to say to you is, much of modern Christendom is outrageous nonsense. It's just outrageous nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's God talk with no God acts. Peter said, it's my favorite paraphrase of his. So the true believer is not just the sayer, he's a doer. He or she is a doer. And the Lord Jesus says in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Why do you play this game? <laughs> powerful, powerful passage. So I want to emphasize again, don't want anybody to be confused. We are Protestants. In a Protestant tradition, we don't believe we're saved by sacraments and prayers and pilgrimages and doing good works. We're not saved by that. We're saved by the finished work of Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the biblical message. We're saved by that. But if we're saved by that, as James says, we'll be all about that. We'll be at work. We'll be acting on the words of God. That's what real Christians do. We act on the words of God. We seek to obey Him. Again, not perfectly. Go read Romans chapter 7. Paul is in anguish over his sin. The apostle. He says, there's this war in me. But he's in the fight. You know, he's in the fight. We aren't saved because we build upon Christ and His Word. We build upon Christ and His Word because we are saved. Huge difference between... Protestant understanding and Catholic understanding. And Jesus talks about a storm, and this is the storm of ultimate judgment, right? This is the context. Uh, but whether it's that storm or some temporal storm, we cannot be blown over because we are standing on the immutable rock of God, the God of the Psalms, which takes us a little bit back to the Psalms. The psalmists were all over this, they loved this image of God as the rock, the strong tower, the stronghold, the refuge. It's why I read Psalm 18.31 to begin the, the service. David explain, exclaims, Who is a rock except our God? 
So, Jesus finishes the greatest sermon ever preached. <laughs> and he doesn't, his invitation is not, pray this prayer, and I'll proclaim you a Christian, and you should never doubt. This is what used to happen where I grew up. The problem is, you know, that's just not in the Bible. And the problem is that's just wrong. You know, you, you, actually, you actually read your Bible, <laughs> and God's really, really, He's really, really clear. I'm not saying there's not mystery in the Bible. I'm saying when it comes to salvation, He's really, really, really clear. So there can be no confusion. So Jesus sums up all of life. There are two gates, two ways, two trees, two fruits, two choices, and two destinies. This is my last... Yeah, Eugene Peterson paraphrase because I'm done. Matthew 7, 24-26. Just listen to Peterson's paraphrase. He's paraphrasing the words of Jesus. He says, These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. I can't tell you. I've been doing this for 30 years. I can't tell you how many professed Christians I run into. And you can tell the Word of God is incidental to their life. They don't take it serious at all. It never enters into their marriage. It never ever, ever enters into their relationships. It doesn't enter into their work. It doesn't enter into their leisure on the internet. It's just incidental. Peterson continues. He says, these are not incidental words. These are foundational words. Words to build a life upon. But if you use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like the foolish man who builds on the sand. Right? You know, some of us are good at Bible study. But what's it look like when we're out in the world and none of our friends are watching. Or when we're surfing the internet, what's it like then? Listen, beloved, I'm calling you out of the garbage that is sin. I'm trying to call you out of sin. Sin will never satisfy your soul. It will never satisfy your soul. You will always be left wanting. It, it never gives what it promises. It never gives what it... And I'm trying to call you out of garbage and in to the best thing you've ever been invited into, and that's Christ Jesus. Discover who you're supposed to be. Discover how you're supposed to live. Find out how big the joy can be in your life as you commune with your Maker and your Redeemer and your friend and your co-heir. I love Christianity. There ought to be 10,000 people trying to come in here to hear about Jesus Christ. And we understand that men's hearts are hard. So Jesus says one way is broad and wide and most of humanity is on that road. God says the way, if you want to come to Me, it's a small and narrow way. Jesus invited men to walk with Him to stop chasing bubbles that burst and that's my invitation to you. Some of you who don't know Christ, I'm inviting you to come. Those of you who have grown cold, you've grown lukewarm, your Christianity has become nominal, I'm calling you out of your nominalism. I'm calling you to be a radical disciple of Christ. I'm calling you to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 
And I want to tell you, when you do, C.S. Lewis is right. There's a, there's a kind of joyfulness that makes you serious. And there's a, there's a, there's a seriousness that will make you joyful. <laughs> it's how it works, beloved. It's just how it works. So real Christianity, it's a narrow way. It's a fruit-bearing way. And so I'll just close with this question. Which road are you on? Which road are you on? Let's pray together. Lord, I praise You that You talk to us as adults. You you make things very simple. We know that false teachers like to obfuscate and confuse and make false distinctions. And But Lord, You speak to us out of love. You tell us what it looks like to go with You. It's the call that costs everything and ultimately costs nothing. We put down the superficial and we pick up the eternal. I've never heard of a better bargain than that. Ever. Ever. Lord God, thank You for this invitation. Thank You for this exhortation and this warning and these powerful illustrations. We, we thank You that the Sermon on the Mount closes out with such a strong call to come to Christ. Thank You, Father, that You are always calling us to Yourself. I pray that You would draw many in this room. If there be those who do not know You, and there be those who have merely been religious with You, I pray, Father, that You would do a mighty work, that You would draw them to Yourself. Thank You for these powerful words. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.